0: Section three of American Notes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Srigley, Charlottesville, Virginia. American Notes by Charles Dickens. Chapter three, part one. Boston in all the public establishments of america the utmost courtesy prevails most of our departments are susceptible of a considerable improvement in this respect but the custom-house above all others would do well to take example from the united states and render itself somewhat less odious and offensive to foreigners the servile rapacity of the french officials is sufficiently contemptible but there is a surly boorish incivility "'about our men, "'alike disgusting to all persons "'who fall into their hands, "'and discreditable to the nation "'that keeps such ill-conditioned curs "'snarling about its gates. "'When I landed in America, "'I could not help being strongly impressed "'with the contrast their custom-house presented, "'and the attention, politeness, and good-humor "'with which its officers discharged their duty.' As we did not land at Boston in consequence of some detention at the wharf until after dark, I received my first impressions of the city in walking down to the Custom House on the morning after our arrival, which was Sunday. I am afraid to say, by the way, how many offers of pews and seats in church for that morning were made to us, by formal note of invitation, before we had half finished our first dinner in America but if i may be allowed to make a moderate guess without going into nicer calculation i should say that at least as many sittings were proffered us as would have accommodated a score or two of grown-up families the number of creeds and forms of religion to which the pleasure of our company was requested was in very fair proportion not being able in the absence of any change of clothes to go to church that day we were compelled to decline these kindnesses one and all, and I was reluctantly obliged to forego the delight of hearing Dr. Channing, who happened to preach that morning, for the first time in a very long interval. I mention the name of this distinguished and accomplished man, with whom I soon afterwards had the pleasure of becoming personally acquainted, that I may have the gratification of recording my humble tribute of admiration and respect for his high abilities and character and for the bold philanthropy with which he has ever opposed himself to that most hideous blot and foul disgrace slavery to return to boston when i got into the streets upon this sunday morning the air was so clear the houses were so bright and gay the signboards were painted in such gaudy colors the gilded letters were so very golden the bricks were so very red the stone was so very white The blinds and area railings were so very green, the knobs and plates upon the street doors so marvelously bright and twinkling, and all so slight and unsubstantial in appearance, that every thoroughfare in the city looked exactly like a scene in a pantomime. It rarely happens in the business streets that a tradesman, if I may venture to call anybody a tradesman, where everybody is a merchant, resides above his store so that many occupations are often carried on in one house, and the whole front is covered with boards and inscriptions. As I walked along, I kept glancing up at these boards, confidently expecting to see a few of them change into something, and I never turned a corner suddenly without looking out for the clown in the pantaloon, who I had no doubt were hiding in a doorway or behind some pillar close at hand. As to Harlequin and Columbine, I discovered immediately that they lodged—they are always looking after lodgings in a pantomime— at a very small clockmaker's one-story high near the hotel, which, in addition to various symbols and devices almost covering the whole front, had a great dial hanging out—to be jumped through, of course. The suburbs are, if possible, even more unsubstantial-looking than the city. The white wooden houses, so white that it makes one wink to look at them, with their green jalousy-blinds, are so sprinkled and dropped about in all directions, without seeming to have any root at all in the ground, and the small churches and chapels are so prim and bright and highly varnished that I almost believed the whole affair could be taken up piecemeal, like a child's toy, and crammed into a little box. The city is a beautiful one, and cannot fail, I should imagine, to impress all strangers very favorably, THE PRIVATE DWELLING-HOUSES ARE FOR THE MOST PART LARGE AND ELEGANT, THE SHOPS EXTREMELY GOOD, AND THE PUBLIC BUILDINGS HANDSOME. THE STATE HOUSE IS BUILT UPON THE SUMMIT OF A HILL, WHICH RISES GRADUALLY AT FIRST, AND AFTERWARDS BY A STEEP ascent, ALMOST FROM THE WATER'S EDGE. ITS FRONT IS A GREEN ENCLOSURE CALLED THE COMMON. THE SITE IS BEAUTIFUL, AND FROM THE TOP THERE IS A CHARMING PANORAMIC VIEW OF THE WHOLE TOWN AND NEIGHBORHOOD in addition to a variety of commodious offices it contains two handsome chambers in one the house of representatives of the state hold their meetings in the other the senate such proceedings as i saw here were conducted with perfect gravity and decorum and were certainly calculated to inspire attention and respect there is no doubt that much of the intellectual refinement and superiority of boston is referable to the quiet influence of the university of cambridge which is within three or four miles of the city the resident professors at that university are gentlemen of learning and varied attainments and are without one exception that i can call to mind men who would shed a grace upon and do honour to any society in the civilised world many of the resident gentry in boston and its neighbourhood and i think i am not mistaken in adding a large majority of those who are attached to the liberal professions there have been educated at this same school. Whatever the defects of American universities may be, they disseminate no prejudices, rare no bigots, dig up the buried ashes of no old superstitions, never interpose between the people and their improvement, exclude no man because of his religious opinions. Above all, in their whole course of study and instruction, recognize a world, and a broad one too, lying beyond the college walls. It was a source of inexpressible pleasure to me to observe the almost imperceptible but not less certain effect wrought by this institution among the small community of Boston, and to note at every turn the humanizing taste and desires it has engendered. The affectionate friendships to which it has given rise, the amount of vanity and prejudice it has dispelled. The golden calf they worship at Boston is a pygmy compared with the giant effigies set up in other parts of that vast counting-house which lies beyond the Atlantic, and the almighty dollar sinks into something comparatively insignificant amidst a whole pantheon of better gods above all i sincerely believe that the public institutions and charities of this capital of massachusetts are as nearly perfect as the most considerate wisdom benevolence and humanity can make them i never in my life was more affected by the contemplation of happiness under circumstances of privation and bereavement than in my visits to these establishments it is a great and pleasant feature of all such institutions in america that they are either supported by the state or assisted by the state or in the event of their not needing its helping hand that they act in concert with it and are emphatically the people's i cannot but think with a view to the principle and its tendency to elevate or depress the character of the industrious classes that a public charity is immeasurably better than a private foundation no matter how munificently the latter may be endowed. In our own country, where it has not, until within these later days, been a very popular fashion with governments to display any extraordinary regard for the great mass of the people, or to recognize their existence as improvable creatures, private charities, unexampled in the history of the earth, have arisen, and do an incalculable amount of good among the destitute and afflicted. But, the government of the country having neither act nor part in them is not in the receipt of any portion of the gratitude they inspire and offering very little shelter or relief beyond that which is to be found in the workhouse and the jail has come not unnaturally to be looked upon by the poor rather as a stern master quick to correct and punish than a kind protector merciful and vigilant in their hour of need the maxim that out of evil cometh good is strongly illustrated by these establishments at home as the records of the prerogative office in doctor's commons can abundantly prove some immensely rich old gentleman or lady surrounded by needy relatives makes upon a low average a will a week the old gentleman or lady never very remarkable in the best of times for good temper is full of aches and pains from head to foot, full of fancies and caprices, full of spleen, distrust, suspicion, and dislike. To cancel old wills and invent new ones is at last the sole business of such a testator's existence, and relations and friends, some of whom have been bred up distinctly to inherit a large share of the property, and have been from their cradles specially disqualified from devoting themselves to any useful pursuit on that account, are so often and so unexpectedly and summarily cut off, and reinstated, and cut off again, that the whole family down to the remotest cousin is kept in a perpetual fever. At length it becomes plain that the old lady or gentleman has not long to live, and the plainer this becomes the more clearly the old lady or gentleman perceives that everybody is in a conspiracy against their poor old dying relative, wherefore the old lady or gentleman makes another last will, positively the last this time, conceals the same in a china teapot, and expires the next day. Then it turns out that the whole of the real and personal estate is divided between half a dozen charities, and that the dead and gone testator has, in pure spite, helped to do a great deal of good, at the cost of an immense amount of evil passion and misery. The Perkins Institute and Massachusetts Asylum for the Blind at Boston is superintended by a body of trustees who make an annual report to the corporation. The indigent blind of that state are admitted gratuitously. Those from the adjoining state of Connecticut, or from the states of Maine, Vermont, or New Hampshire, are admitted by a warrant from the state to which they respectively belong, or, failing that, must find security among their friends for the payment of about twenty pounds English for their first year's board and instruction, and ten for the second. After the first year, say the trustees, an account current will be opened with each pupil. He will be charged with the actual cost of his board, which will not exceed two dollars per week, a trifle more than eight shillings English, and he will be credited with the amount paid for him by the state or by his friends, also with his earnings over and above the cost of the stock which he uses.' so that all his earnings, over one dollar per week, will be his own. By the third year it will be known whether his earnings will more than pay the actual cost of his board. If they should, he will have it at his option to remain and receive his earnings or not. Those who prove unable to earn their own livelihood will not be retained, as it is not desirable to convert the establishment into an almshouse or to retain any but working bees in the hive. Those who by physical or mental imbecility are disqualified from work are thereby disqualified from being members of an industrious community, and they can be better provided for in establishments fitted for the infirm. I went to see this place one very fine winter morning, an Italian sky above, and the air so clear and bright on every side THAT EVEN MY EYES, WHICH ARE NONE OF THE BEST, COULD FOLLOW THE MINUTE LINES AND SCRAPS OF TRACERY IN DISTANT BUILDINGS. LIKE MOST OTHER PUBLIC INSTITUTIONS IN AMERICA, OF THE SAME CLASS, IT STANDS A MILE OR TWO WITHOUT THE TOWN, IN A CHEERFUL HEALTHY SPOT, AND IS AN AIRY, SPACIOUS, HANDSOME edifice. IT IS BUILT UPON A HEIGHT COMMANDING THE HARBOR, when i paused for a moment at the door and marked how fresh and free the whole scene was what sparkling bubbles glanced upon the waves and welled up every moment to the surface as though the world below like that above were radiant with the bright day and gushing over in its fullness of light when i gazed from sail to sail away upon a ship at sea a tiny speck of shining white the only cloud upon the still deep DISTANT BLUE, AND TURNING, SAW A BLIND BOY WITH HIS SIGHTLESS FACE ADDRESSED THAT WAY, AS THOUGH HE, TOO, HAD SOME SENSE WITHIN HIM OF THE GLORIOUS DISTANCE. I FELT A KIND OF SORROW, THAT THE PLACE SHOULD BE SO VERY LIGHT, AND A STRANGE WISH THAT FOR HIS SAKE IT WERE DARKER. IT WAS BUT MOMENTARY, OF COURSE, AND A MERE FANCY, BUT I FELT IT KEENLY FOR ALL THAT. The children were at their daily task in different rooms, except a few who were already dismissed and were at play. Here, as in many institutions, no uniform is worn, and I was very glad of it, for two reasons. Firstly, because I am sure that nothing but senseless custom and want of thought would reconcile us to the liveries and badges we are so fond of at home. Secondly, because the absence of these things presents each child to the visitor in his or her own proper character with its individuality unimpaired not lost in a dull ugly monotonous repetition of the same unmeaning garb which is really an important consideration the wisdom of encouraging a little harmless pride in personal appearance even among the blind or the whimsical absurdity of considering charity and leather breeches, inseparable companions, as we do, requires no comment. Good order, cleanliness, and comfort pervaded every corner of the building. The various classes who were gathered round their teachers answered the questions put to them with readiness and intelligence, and in a spirit of cheerful contest for precedence, which pleased me very much those who were at play were gleesome and noisy as other children more spiritual and affectionate friendships appeared to exist among them than would be found among other young persons suffering under no deprivation but this i expected and was prepared to find it is a part of the great scheme of heaven's merciful consideration for the afflicted and a portion of the building set apart for that purpose are workshops for blind persons whose education is finished and who have acquired a trade but who cannot pursue it in an ordinary manufactory because of their deprivation several people were at work here making brushes mattresses and so forth and the cheerfulness industry and good order discernible in every other part of the building extended to this department also on the ringing of a bell THE PUPILS ALL REPAIRED, WITHOUT ANY GUIDE OR LEADER, TO A SPACIOUS MUSIC HALL, WHERE THEY TOOK THEIR SEATS IN AN ORCHESTRA ERECTED FOR THAT PURPOSE, AND LISTENED, WITH MANIFEST DELIGHT, TO A VOLUNTARY ON THE ORGAN PLAYED BY ONE OF THEMSELVES. AT ITS CONCLUSION, THE PERFORMER, A BOY OF NINETEEN OR TWENTY, GAVE PLACE TO A GIRL, AND TO HER ACCOMPANIMENT THEY ALL SANG A hymn, AND AFTERWARDS A SORT OF CHORUS. It was very sad to look upon and hear them, happy though their condition unquestionably was, and I saw that one blind girl, who, being for the time deprived of the use of her limbs by illness, sat close beside me, with her face toward them, wept silently, the while she listened. It is strange to watch the faces of the blind and see how free they are from all concealment of what is passing in their thoughts, observing which a man with many eyes may blush to contemplate the mask he wears, allowing for one shade of anxious expression which is never absent from their countenances, and the like of which we may readily detect on our own faces if we try to feel our way in the dark, every idea, as it rises within them, is expressed with the lightning speed and nature's truth." If the company at a rout or drawing-room at court could only for one time be as unconscious of the eyes upon them as blind men and women are, what secrets would come out, and what a worker of hypocrisy this sight, the loss of which we so much pity, would appear to be? The thought occurred to me as I sat down in another room before a girl, blind, deaf, and dumb destitute of smell and nearly so of taste, before a fair young creature with every human faculty of hope and power of goodness and affection enclosed within her delicate frame and but one outward sense, the sense of touch. There she was, before me, built up, as it were, in a marble cell impervious to any ray of light or particle of sound, with her poor white hand peeping through a chink in the wall, beckoning to some good man for help, that an immortal soul might be awakened. Long before I looked upon her, the help had come. Her face was radiant with intelligence and pleasure. Her hair, braided by her own hands, was bound about a head whose intellectual capacity and development were beautifully expressed in its graceful outlines and its broad open brow, her dress arranged by herself, was a pattern of neatness and simplicity. The work she had knitted lay beside her. Her writing-book was on the desk she leaned upon. From the mournful ruin of such bereavement there had slowly risen up this gentle, tender, guileless, grateful-hearted being. Like other inmates of that house, she had a green ribbon bound around her eyelids, a doll she had dressed, lay near upon the ground i took it up and saw that she had made a green fillet such as she wore herself and fastened it about its mimic eyes she was seated in a little enclosure made by school desk and forms writing her daily journal but soon finishing this pursuit she engaged in an animated conversation with a teacher who sat beside her this was a favorite mistress with the poor pupil If she could see the face of her fair instructress, she would not love her less, I am sure. I have extracted a few disjointed fragments of her history from an account written by that one man who has made her what she is. It is a very beautiful and touching narrative, and I wish I could present it entire. Her name is Laura Bridgman. She was born in Hanover, New Hampshire, on the 21st of December, 1829. She is described as having been a very sprightly and pretty infant, with bright blue eyes. She was, however, so puny and feeble, until she was a year and a half old, that her parents hardly hoped to rear her. She was subject to severe fits, which seemed to rack her frame almost beyond her power of endurance, and life was held by the feeblest tenure. But when a year and a half old, she seemed to rally the dangerous symptoms subsided, and at twenty months old she was perfectly well. Then her mental powers, hitherto stinted in their growth, rapidly developed themselves, and during the four months of health which she enjoyed, she appears, making due allowance for a fond mother's account, to have displayed a considerable degree of intelligence. But suddenly she sickened again. Her disease raged with great violence during five weeks, when her eyes and ears were inflamed, superated, and their contents were discharged. But though sight and hearing were gone forever, the poor child's sufferings were not ended. The fever raged during seven weeks. For five months she was kept in bed in a darkened room. It was a year before she could walk unsupported, and two years before she could sit up all day. It was now observed that her sense of smell was almost entirely destroyed, and consequently that her taste was much blunted it was not until four years of age that the poor child's bodily health seemed restored and she was able to enter upon her apprenticeship of life and the world but what a situation was hers the darkness and silence of the tomb were around her no mother's smile called forth her answering smile no father's voice taught her to imitate his sounds they brothers and sisters were but forms of matter which resisted her touch but which differed not from the furniture of the house save in warmth and in the power of locomotion and not even in these respects from the dog and the cat but the immortal spirit which had been implanted within her could not die nor be maimed nor mutilated though most of its avenues of communication with the world were cut off, it began to manifest itself through the others. As soon as she could walk, she began to explore the room, and then the house. She became familiar with the form, density, weight, and heat of every article she could lay her hands upon. She followed her mother and felt her hands and arms as she was occupied about the house, and her disposition to imitate led her to repeat everything herself. She even learned to sew a little, and to knit, the reader will scarcely need to be told however that the opportunities of communicating with her were very very limited and that the moral effects of her wretched state soon began to appear those who cannot be enlightened by reason can only be controlled by force and this coupled with her great privations must soon have reduced her to a worse condition than that of the beasts that perish but for timely and unhoped-for aid. At this time I was so fortunate as to hear of the child and immediately hastened to Hanover to see her. I found her with a well-formed figure, a strongly marked, nervous, sanguine temperament, a large and beautifully shaped head, and the whole system in healthy action. The parents were easily induced to consent to her coming to Boston, and on the 4th of October, 1837, they brought her to the institution. For a while, she was much bewildered, and after waiting about two weeks until she became acquainted with her new locality and somewhat familiar with the inmates, the attempt was made to give her knowledge of arbitrary signs, by which she could interchange thoughts with others. There was one of two ways to be adopted, either to go on to build up a language of signs on the basis of the natural language which she had already commenced herself, or to teach her the purely arbitrary language in common use, that is, to give her a sign for every individual thing, or to give her a knowledge of letters by combination of which she might express her idea of the existence and the mode and condition of existence of anything. The former would have been easy but very ineffectual, the latter seemed very difficult, but if accomplished very effectual. I determined, therefore, to try the latter. The first experiments were made by taking articles in common use, such as knives, forks, spoons, keys, etc., and pasting upon them labels with their names printed in raised letters. These she felt very carefully, and soon, of course, distinguished that the crooked lines SPOON differed as much from the crooked lines key as the spoon differed from the key in form then small detached labels with the same words printed upon them were put into her hands and she soon observed that they were similar to the ones pasted on the articles she showed her perception of this similarity by laying the label key upon the key and the label spoon upon the spoon she was encouraged here by the natural sign of approbation, patting on the head. The same process was then repeated with all the articles which she could handle, and she very easily learned to place the proper labels upon them. It was evident, however, that the only intellectual exercise was that of imitation and memory. She recollected that the label book was placed upon a book, and she repeated the process first from imitation next from memory, with only the motive of love of approbation, but apparently without the intellectual perception of any relation between the things. After a while, instead of labels, the individual letters were given to her on detached bits of paper. They were arranged side by side so as to spell book, key, etc. Then they were mixed up in a heap, and a sign was made for her to arrange them herself, so as to express the words book, key, etc., and she did so. Hitherto the process had been mechanical, and the success about as great as teaching a very knowing dog a variety of tricks. The poor child had sat in mute amazement and patiently imitated everything her teacher did. But now the truth began to flash upon her. Her intellect began to work. She perceived that here was a way by which she could herself make up a sign of anything that was in her own mind, and show it to another mind, and at once her countenance lighted up with a human expression. It was no longer a dog or parrot, it was an immortal spirit, eagerly seizing upon a new link of union with other spirits. I could almost fix upon the moment when this truth dawned upon her mind and spread its light to her countenance i saw that the great obstacle was overcome and that henceforward nothing but patient and persevering but plain and straightforward efforts were to be used the result thus far is quickly related and easily conceived but not so was the process for many weeks of apparently unprofitable labour were passed before it was effected when it was said above that a sign was made it was intended to say that the action was performed by her teacher she feeling his hands and then imitating the motion the next step was to procure a set of metal types with different letters of the alphabet cast upon their ends also a board in which were square holes into which holes she could set the type so that the letters on their ends could alone be felt above the surface then on any article being handed to her for instance a pencil or a watch she would select the component letters and arrange them on her board and read them with apparent pleasure. She was exercised for several weeks in this way until her vocabulary became extensive, and then the important step was taken of teaching her how to represent the different letters by the position of her fingers instead of the cumbrous apparatus of the board and types. She accomplished this speedily, and easily for her intellect had begun to work in aid of her teacher and her progress was rapid this was the period about three months after she had commenced that the first report of her case was made in which it was stated that she had just learned the manual alphabet as used by the deaf-mutes and it is a subject of delight and wonder to see how rapidly correctly and eagerly she goes on with her labours her teacher gives her a new object, for instance, a pencil, first lets her examine it and get an idea of its use, then teaches her how to spell it by making the signs for the letters with her own fingers. The child grasps her hand, feels her fingers, as the different letters are formed. She turns her head a little on one side, like a person listening closely. Her lips are apart. She seems scarcely to breathe, and her countenance at first anxious, gradually changes to a smile as she comprehends the lesson. She then holds up her tiny fingers and spells the word in the manual alphabet. Next, she takes her types and arranges her letters, and last, to make sure that she is right, she takes the whole of the types composing the word and places them upon or in contact with the pencil or whatever the object may be. The whole of the succeeding year was passed in gratifying her eager inquiries for the names of every object which she could possibly handle, in exercising her in the use of the manual alphabet, in extending in every possible way her knowledge of the physical relations of things, and in proper care of her health. At the end of the year a report of her case was made, from which the following is an extract. It has been ascertained beyond the possibility of doubt that she cannot see a ray of light, cannot hear the least sound, and never exercises her sense of smell, if she have any. Thus her mind dwells in darkness and stillness as profound as that of a closed tomb at midnight. Of beautiful sights and sweet sounds and pleasant odors she has no conception. Nevertheless, She seems as happy and playful as a bird or a lamb, and the employment of her intellectual faculties, or the acquirement of a new idea, gives her a vivid pleasure which is plainly marked in her expressive features. She seems never to repine, but has all the buoyancy and gaiety of childhood. She is fond of fun and frolic, and when playing with the rest of the children, her shrill laugh sounds loudest of the group. When left alone, she seems very happy if she have her knitting or sewing, and will busy herself for hours if she have no occupation. She evidently amuses herself by imaginary dialogues or by recalling past impressions. She counts with her fingers or spells out names of things which she has recently learned in the manual alphabet of the deaf-mutes. In this lonely self-communion, she seems to reason, reflect, and argue If she spell a word wrong with the fingers of her right hand, she instantly strikes it with her left, as her teacher does, in sign of disapprobation. If right, then she pats herself upon the head and looks pleased. She sometimes purposely spells a word wrong with the left hand, looks roguish for a moment, and laughs, and then with the right hand strikes the left as if to correct it. During this year she has attained great dexterity in the use of the manual alphabet of the deaf mutes, and she spells out the words and sentences which she knows, so fast and so deftly, that only those accustomed to this language can follow with the eye the rapid motions of her fingers. But wonderful as is the rapidity with which she writes her thoughts upon the air, still more so is the ease and accuracy with which she reads the words thus written by another, grasping their hands in hers and following every movement of their fingers as letter after letter conveys their meaning to her mind it is in this way that she converses with her blind playmates and nothing can more forcibly show the power of mind in forcing matter to its purpose than a meeting between them for if great talent and skill are necessary for two pantomimes to paint their thoughts and feelings by the movements of the body and the expression of the countenance, how much greater the difficulty when darkness shrouds them both, and the one can hear no sound. When Laura is walking through a passageway with her hands spread before her, she knows instantly every one she meets, and passes them with a sign of recognition. But if it be a girl of her own age, and especially if it be one of her favorites, there is instantly a bright smile of recognition, a twining of arms, a grasping of hands, and a swift telegraphing upon the tiny fingers, whose rapid evolutions convey the thoughts and feelings from the outpost of one mind to those of another. There are questions and answers, exchanges of joy or sorrow, there are kissings and partings, just as between little children, with all their senses. During this year and six months after she had left home, her mother came to visit her, and the scene of their meeting was an interesting one. The mother stood some time gazing with overflowing eyes upon her unfortunate child, who, all unconscious of her presence, was playing about the room. Presently, "'Laura ran against her, and at once began feeling her hands, examining her dress, and trying to find out if she knew her. But, not succeeding in this, she turned away as from a stranger, and the poor woman could not conceal the pang she felt at finding that her beloved child did not know her. She then gave Laura a string of beads, which she used to wear at home, which were recognized by the child at once.' "'who with much joy put them round her neck "'and sought me eagerly to say "'she understood that the string was from her home. "'The mother now sought to caress her, "'but poor Laura repelled her, "'preferring to be with her acquaintances. "'Another article from home was now given her, "'and she began to look much interested. "'She examined the stranger much closer "'and gave me to understand "'that she knew she came from Hanover.' She even endured her caresses, but would leave her with indifference at the slightest signal. The distress of the mother was now painful to behold, for although she had feared that she should not be recognized, the painful reality of being treated with cold indifference by a darling child was too much for the woman's nature to bear. After a while, on the mother taking hold of her again, a vague idea seemed to flit across Laura's mind, that this could not be a stranger. She therefore felt her hands very eagerly, while her countenance assumed an expression of intense interest. She became very pale, and then suddenly red. Hope seemed struggling with doubt and anxiety, and never were contending emotions more strongly painted upon the human face. At this moment of painful uncertainty, the mother drew her close to her side and kissed her fondly, when at once the truth flashed upon the child, and all mistrust and anxiety disappeared from her face, as with an expression of exceeding joy she eagerly nestled to the bosom of her parent, and yielded herself to her fond embraces. After this the beads were all unheeded, the playthings which were offered to her were utterly disregarded. Her playmates for whom but a moment before she gladly left the stranger, now vainly strove to pull her from her mother, and though she yielded her usual instantaneous obedience to my signal to follow me, it was evidently with painful reluctance. She clung close to me, as if bewildered and fearful, and when after a moment I took her to her mother, she sprang to her arms and clung to her with eager joy. The subsequent parting between them, showed alike the affection the intelligence and the resolution of the child laura accompanied her mother to the door clinging close to her all the way until they arrived at the threshold where she paused and felt around to ascertain who was near her perceiving the matron of whom she is very fond she grasped her with one hand holding on convulsively to her mother with the other and thus she stood for a moment Then she dropped her mother's hand, put her handkerchief to her eyes, and, turning round, clung sobbing to the matron, while her mother departed with emotions as deep as those of her child. End of Section 3. Chapter 3. Part 1. Reading by Bob Strickley. Charlottesville, Virginia.